Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> this episode is all about four King Kong movies that we will handle sequentially. The 1933, 1976 and 2005 versions of King Kong and the 2017 Warner Brothers Monsterverse second instalment, Skull Island. Precursor to Godzilla vs. King Kong in 2021. We will begin with a trio of essays I wrote during my movie-a-day period. King Kong 1933 Wild, weird, wonderful. The stuff for which movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true, while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. The synopsis for all three King Kongs is the same. Men go to a mysterious island, find a tribe who sacrifice women to a giant ape. The ape kills some of them and snatches away their white woman. They catch the ape and bring it back to New York City where it goes berserk and climbs a skyscraper clutching the lady it has become obsessed with. Planes are mustered, they kill the ape, he falls to the ground. What varies across the three are how attached the women and by extension we the audience become to the ape. This is a sacred cow of the highest order, the original blockbuster and the showcase for pioneering effects. That in no way changes the irrefutable fact that unless you grew up watching it on your daddy's knee or in some other way received a rock-solid reverence for it, this is one hard movie to watch today. It's very slow to start, most of the dialogue, acting and action is laughable, it's boring, sloppily directed, blunt, stupid, clumsy, weirdly paced, the characters are gossamer thin, and to make things really super uncomfortable, it has an undercurrent of casual colonialism. There's deeper and deeper and more uncomfortable racial metaphors in there, but I'll handle those at the end. In terms of the central conflict and relationship, all our leading lady Faye Ray does, once the ape gets hold of her, is struggle and scream, making for some tedious repetition as he shakes her about like a rag doll. This furtive attention is made all the worse in the 1970s remake when Charles Grodin crassly and insistently informs Jessica Lang, he tried to rape you twice. You might imagine that back in this more innocent age, they would be a little more coy about this creature's primal curiosity, but no, he's ripping off layers of her clothing, poking and tickling at her, and sniffing his fingers afterwards. By today's standards, where the above racism is also not fine, this is full-on Creep Kong, and I feel sad to dethrone him. But, and it's a big but... Strangely and conversely, these moments of this simian pervert having his way with this screaming captive are the best character beats on show, as the stop-motion effects have a hundred times the personality of any of the moving human beings on screen, especially when the two are awkwardly juxtaposed with forced perspective. These effects were overseen by Willis O'Brien, Buzz Dixon, and their scrappy young assistant named Ray Harryhausen, who only passed away in 2013 after a lifetime of keeping this beautiful medium of creature motion realization going. They breathe vibrant life into the enormous monochrome ape 
And now I get why he was included in Lego Batman along with the Kraken, since the Lego animation style along with Leica is manifestly inspired by these early efforts. The effects also bring to life the other inhabitants of Skull Island, making them fascinating to watch. You can see the carefully crafted, painstakingly arranged detail and nuance in every movement, far outstripping every other element of the film. And every time it switches to the full-sized ape head, the difference and relative immobility are like buckets of icy water. There's an unsettling scene in which a brontosaurus throws his herbivorous nature to the wind and devours a man hiding in a tree. His screams are truly blood-curdling in an era before the Wilhelm. Kong is physically expressive in a way that sparked a chain reaction through the 20th century and beyond. When he falls at the end, a moment almost ruined by a cheap shot of a monkey ragdoll dropping off a model Empire State Building, the actual visual characterization and its ability to make you regret that moment of inevitable, fatal response to his presence among humans, it outstrips most everything that followed for some 40 years. Lieutenant, I'm Carl Denham. Carl Denham? Denham? Well, that's the man that captured the monster. Well, Denham, the airplane's got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. King Kong, 1976. Dino De Laurentiis presents the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. I do not think you know what the word original means. Or exciting. Fantastic adventure. Or fantastic. Or adventure. King Kong, unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Well, one assumes it's a bit like King Kong. With Jeff Bridges, Charles Groton, and introducing Jessica Lange as the beauty who charmed the beast. And starring the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong. This one was made 43 years later, in time for the remit to be a solid This ain't your grandmama's King Kong. Although, ironically, now it kind of is. By the way, the reason this sounds like an old Bond film is because the score was John Barry. See, now they're going to the island to look for oil. They find a girl in a dinghy along the way named Duane, played by Jessica Lange, who is giggly and dreamy and acts through most of the movie like she's on a gentle LSD trip. She tells the drooling men, including Jeff Bridges, stowaway environmentalist, that she was on deck and thus saved from an exploding sinking ship because she was avoiding watching Deep Throat. Told you. This was billed on the posters as the most exciting original motion picture event of all time. It's not any of those things. So nearly half a century has passed. The question is, is this less racist? That depends on if you think Live and Let Die is racist. 
One of the aspects that roots it in its time, a period between the late 60s and late 70s, is the use of gentle flutes in the score, especially to express femininity, fragility and tenderness. It hadn't occurred to me before now, but this was something that was done with movie music prior to that window when synthesizers and then the theremin took over and things went electronic for a while. This time, rather than stop motion, we are treated to Will Shepard, Peter Cullen, voice of Optimus Prime and Venger, and primarily effects master Rick Baker in an ape suit with an animatronic head. He walks around casually and looks exactly like he's a man in an ape suit. In the wake of contemporary performance capture on Kong, Caesar and Hulk, where the actors really get into the physical role and every nuance comes from somewhere organic and following on from the stop motion, I cannot let this pass as anything other than lazy and devoid of charm, betraying little to no effort on Baker's part to get into character as an enormous primate. When he voiced Smaug, even Benedict Cumberbatch got down on his hands and knees and roared about the motion capture chamber pretending to be a dragon. The irony is that Baker was a master in the field of makeup and practical effects, bringing us The Exorcist, Star Wars, Thriller, American Werewolf, Gremlins 2, Men in Black, Hellboy, The Wolfman and Maleficent. The head and facial movements are more directed and deliberate, so if they had employed someone gifted in expressive physical movement, this could have been something special. But they didn't, and it's not. Just watch Predator 1987 again, and see what Kevin Peter Hall does inside the Predator suit. Jessica Lang does call Kong a male chauvinist pig, which is nicely progressive. But then when he holds her in his big hand and blows her dry, she is nearly brought to orgasm. So, I don't know what to feel. Also, they omit the T-Rex fight in favour of a rubber snake, presumably because the effects of the day would have necessitated a bloke in a dinosaur suit, and then you've got the Toho Godzilla vs. King Kong 1962 on your hands. If the alternative is this rubbish snake, then I wish they'd gone the Japanese route. They definitely play up Kong's fixation on the girl this time, although nearly every moment your heart might ache for the beast, he does something creepy, like feverishly sniffing at her clothes, again, like a human rather than a giant gorilla. There's a weird subtext of Jeff Bridges being intimidated by Kong as a sexual rival for Dwan's affections. He comments that Kong is in her blood like dope, and that she's going to be looking for fixes the dude can't give her. Which sounds suspiciously like, once you go giant ape, it's physically impossible to go back. And rather than the Empire State Building, this Kong climbs the World Trade Center, which obviously feels uncomfortable now. But it is in keeping with the original building choice. The Empire State equated to colonial conquerors and the Twin Towers big business oil concerns. And, although they did not intend this, hubris about American mastery of the globe. Gone are the biplanes. Instead, this army bring in helicopter gunships and they carve him into scarlet meat with the awesome power of the minigun. It's fairly sickening to watch, as is yet another bungled transition shot of him falling as he bleeds his last. But it made Lyra cry. Proper, long, pained sobbing as well, not just tears, which is what it's supposed to do, though I think a lot of this was generally down to animal cruelty. This movie has been remade time and again, and a lot of the time it's not even called King Kong. It's called Beauty and the Beast, or The Iron Giant, Bumblebee, or Hellboy. 
and it's about the unexpected empathy you can experience for something superficially unlike yourself, but underneath, a little too familiar. This is a section Sharon and I recorded on King Kong 2005, around about the same time I saw Skull Island at the cinema. Peter Jackson's version creates an entire backstory, history, um, set of plans and dreams and anxieties and frustrations for Anne, and basically makes her a person Mm. rather than just a a random semi-clad trophy, which is what she is in the first two. She is most definitely multifaceted. Absolutely. And when she meets Kong, the nature of their relationship actually struck me as being more like a very hesitant young mother Mm. trying to entertain an extremely truculent, mm. I would say baby, but he's, he behaves more like a toddler. Yeah. He's very Hulk in that sense. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's an overloaded id. The point where he pushes her over and then goes, because <laughs> he finds it hilarious, and then does it again and again, is really symptomatic of young kids not knowing when to stop doing a joke. And not knowing their own strengths specifically yeah. as well. Yeah. But that, that bit where she keeps basically playing dead, mm. um, the, the second time she got up, it suddenly hit me. She's playing peekaboo with him. Yeah. I'm gone. Now I'm back again. Mm. Now I'm gone. Now I'm back again. Um, but yeah, Kong in, in 76 was Rick Baker in an ape hat, wandering around the place with the camera down low so he looked bigger. And um, th- there's a bit where it suddenly turns into a giant inflatable ape, like the kind you would put outside a dealership. And it was like, you know, you'll go ape for our prices. Because this Kong, that they had to erect a sort of a big ape statue so that people could run around and run away from him when he breaks out at the, e- like, at the end of the film where they unveil him from underneath a petrol pump just to show that oil is destroying the natural world. That was ridiculous. Was I, I mean, I, in my youth, I was something of a fervent environmentalist Mm -hmm. even I would have gone that's a bit much (laughs) so yeah and then when the people it's you know cuts to Rick Baker going like that and then the people go and run away from him and then it cuts to the giant inflatable and it looks rubbish but it's almost like we paid $78,000 for that one second worth of footage we're gonna put it in yeah you know what though just two legs get two feet Film close up with people running around shrieking, then do a long shot with what you've been doing so far, which is your man in your suit. I think that Peter Jackson is preoccupied with bugs. As well. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> so basically, what this came down to was Fran and Pippa writing this fantastic interactive human yeah, characterized maybe. script. And then going, like, Peter going, can, can I, I get a bugs? centipede in Please, there? Please, can I put some bugs in it? All right. Okay, you can have a centipede here and here, but no more. And a scorpion? Okay, a scorpion here. and But uh, that's it. Just that you've reached a scorpion limit. What about the big tentacle penises no, with teeth? No, no. Please. All right, you can have them here in the pit. Why don't we just put all the bugs in this one pit scene? Can they eat Andy Circus? Yes. <laughs> Andy has requested that you be eaten. 
I've got to go and shoot second unit. I don't know why he's Australian. He's British. There is, by the way, a fair amount of body shaming at the beginning of this movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, they're talking about uh, who they're going to hire because the, the starlet has disappeared. Mm-hmm. And one of the actresses that gets mentioned is Mae West. Mm-hmm. And it's met with a snort of derision and a ha, you're never going to get Mae West in a size four costume. Um, because obviously she's quite curvy, and then she had an incredible body. I know that's what I mean. And then the bit when um, Anne goes to the burlesque show because she's looking for work, mm-hmm. um, and she's basically stood there looking, you know, waif-like and adorable. And these very brassy, curvy women walk up and walk in. Oh, this is you know, this is just our job. We're just here looking for all the world like people that Carl Denham would never be interested in for his movie. Mm. And then he turns around and hears this angelic little. Um, thing that wouldn't even dream of going in to a burlesque show to make money. And he goes, yes, I want her. Naomi Watts was luminous in the film. She was, with, with full intent. And uh, there, you got really choked up at the end there when, uh, basically from the moment that Kong finally sees her walking out of the shadows to the the end, what was it that got you this time? That whole segment is basically a brief moment of peace and respite, which you know is doomed. Mm. It, it There was a different resonance to the last line for me, actually, in this, because I'd kind of seen um, Anne's approach to Kong not as a... A romantic relationship, which is the angle that's kind of played on for the the earlier versions, mm-hmm. but at, more as a, a parental or at least um, a caring relationship. You know, a big sister or a, a, a very caring teacher with a, a tiny child or something like that. And because they have that exchange where they they sit and watch the sunset on the island, and she says it's beautiful, and then when they go up on the Empire State. They watch the sunset from there as well, and he does the same gesture to mm. say back to her, it's beautiful. And the the beauty that Carl refers to at the end, it hit me that it's not specifically Anne, it's not beauty as a person that was his downfall. It was the beauty of having that moment of peace and and the, the running away to try to find somewhere that he could just be left alone meant he ended up with his back against the wall and, and put in a corner because he was trying to find somewhere that was beautiful, not necessarily someone. I get exactly what you mean. Um, so in the hero's journey, that would be the belly of the whale? Where uh, you, no, the uh, meeting with the goddess. The meeting with the goddess. The point course, where sorry. you can sit down and say... And you could just not move I'm from so there. tired, yeah. I'm just going to stay here. Yeah. It's an out-breath. It's a, a similar kind of... Um, mm feel but it's the the depth of it that's different do you know what i'd really like to see um actually is a a version of king kong done like just post-industrial revolution like we've only just got this steamship that now enables us to go to this place um so that all the tech that they're using so like victorian king kong yeah steampunk Kong. Writes down steampunk Kong. Is there a TM on Big Apes? The the setting of Skull Island, a big part of how that whole section should play out in my mind, is you're bringing the modern world to this place that time forgot, mm. and it's going to kick your fucking ass. <laughs> and and I just think you know the 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 industrial era is the perfect time period to do that. 
and this was my movie a day essay on King Kong 2005. I've come into possession of a map, an uncharted island, a place that was thought to exist only a myth. Wall! There's a wall ahead! Feeling uneasy, Ann. Feeling's growing. It's washing over you. Scream, Ann! Scream for your life! Now we're talking. Peter Jackson's King Kong remake has three or four things I'm not too keen on, and several that I really love. Firstly, the focus on Anne Darrow. This is her story, and Naomi Watts' performance is delicate and strong and full-blooded. She has an amazing physicality and convinces as a vaudevillian performer, which is no mean feat, and a woman gnawed at by hunger, compelled by forces she cannot comprehend, desperate for work, starstruck by Jack Driscoll, terrified by the ape, and then curious, and finally attached in a symbiotic relationship with this strange creature. It is an awful lot of things to be, but she manages all of them splendidly. The faults of this film do not lie with her. Nor do they lie with the production design, which is absolutely gorgeous, capturing the 1930s in a really immersive, transportive fashion, accompanied by James Newton Howard's haunting score. Those dragging points include Jackson being so giddy with his chance to reorchestrate one of his favorite movies that he gives us 50% more than we would have been happy with, particularly in its extended form, which I do not recommend watching as it highlights these flaws, and as a result, you may end up liking the theatrical version less. In either version, it's a long slog to sit through, a bare minimum of three hours and seven minutes longer than the theatrical runtime of the first two Lord of the Rings films. There's a preoccupation with the wheels of fate moving everything into place, as though this world is gearing up to play host to a King Kong story, and all the pieces need to be moved one at a time. There is way too much of that excessive runtime spent dwelling on the creeping, crawling, scuttling, slithering denizens of Skull Island. These insects and lizards are beyond disgusting, and a little of them goes a long way. They all seem to share the same personality, invasive and ravenous. It's less of a living, breathing environment so much as an unimaginably hostile madhouse filled with toothy things that want to devour bits of you. If you figure that there are two figurative sliders for beauty and danger, with Pandora, James Cameron pushed the former to 10 and the latter to uh, 7. Jackson pushed beauty to 4 and danger to 12. Thus Pandora ends up a little too beautiful to be real and Skull Island is a more varied place of lofty breathtaking heights, dense foliage and repulsive grey pits. It reaches a crescendo of unsettling bug-on-human violence in the ravine, where Newton Howard's score plays faintly and hauntingly in the distance as characters slowly die in the worst way imaginable before our eyes. It's too unpleasant for anything more than a quick tour of this island and we've had our fill. 
Jackson's handling of the natives, though, is maybe even worse than it was in the 30s and 70s, with them being superstitious and simple back then, and screaming, jabbering, homicidal, maniac, blood cultists in this. There are also far too many uses of that reduced frame rate slow-mo. Jackson was already a little too keen on it in the Lord of the Rings movies. You don't see it very often today, principally because you have to use it very sparingly for moments of absolute shock when the world falls away. It evokes flickering old documentaries of terrible events and war, and it's a button you should press in case of dire emergency. Otherwise it looks overblown and melodramatic the viewer can sense their manipulation. Moments this technique is not useful, and in fact is counterproductive, include a man typing the word skull with staggered impact, a radio operator receiving news of an arrest warrant, the mere sight of some creepy tribal paraphernalia being grabbed by those same natives, and some poor sod getting his head cracked open by a cannibal. The inspired central conceit that I've never heard mentioned before is that setting this in 1933 and having Denham obsessively push on with his dream of filming a big epic means that they are effectively shooting the original King Kong. The pretender hero gets to swing in on a vine, Johnny Weissmuller style, and the shy writer gets to be the quiet supporter of the beautiful heroine. But it's the director and his selfish decisions which ultimately doom everyone he comes into contact with. And Jack Black plays Denim with manic energy, and at every turn when he could be a decent person, he chooses to lie and exploit until the real monster of this picture is clearly delineated. It's actually one of Jack Black's finest dramatic performances. But the absolute highlight is Andy Serkis and the tech wizards at Weta Digital as Kong himself. For starters, he is modelled on a silverback gorilla, so he actually moves like an ape, very much unlike the 70s version, or indeed, the one in 2017 Skull Island. His mannerisms and movements have been carefully researched and replicated, so what we are seeing here is the closest thing you could get to an impassioned simian actor who actually understands what motivates Kong. They double and then triple down on the V-Rex fight, turning it into a three-versus-one rage-in-the-cage wrestling match many years before Jurassic World brought the concept back. The ape's victory feels hard-earned, and every minute he and Anne spend together, wordlessly and expressively, far surpasses every other scene with people talking. This was manifestly a huge influence upon me when writing Tiger's Eye. Circus's Kong is a tremendous physical performance up there with Gollum. He dominates with his presence and raw animal power, and the eagle-eyed will be able to spot his facial movements beneath the digital mask. It's a very different animal to Caesar. Simple, focused, primal, very, very angry, yet prone to moments of quiet and introspection, loneliness, and perhaps even traces of existential dread. Of course I'm going to like this one more than any of the others. This is the one that actually genuinely sympathizes with Kong. And in doing so, the enemy becomes very much humanity itself. The moment he is stolen from his home, his fate is sealed. North America has no place for him to disappear into solitude and seclusion from the developed world. They would never have allowed him to live outside of iron bars, and yet... The tragedy runs deeper than the interference of man and speaks of the erosion of an ancient world that we can no longer grasp. 
The skeletons of other giant apes suggest that now, after long years of being worshipped as a destructive saviour, which cannot be a new development, Kong is the last of his kind. If you pay attention to the way the land is arranged, it is clear that this haven for prehistoric life, Skull Island, is sinking. It was clearly much bigger in an earlier period, being formed by volcanic activity, and is steadily, over eons, being consumed by the sea. Even left to his own devices, this is a kingdom that would not be his for very much longer. As such, there is an immense amount of unspoken weight in this film. There's gravity and pathos and pain and an unnameable fear and melancholy. And what works against that is the film's sheer size. So I do feel this film could have been saved in the edit. Its problematic elements trimmed and smoothed away until what you're left with is a magnificent sculpture of a proud, sad gorilla. It is still by far my favourite Kong movie because of what is clearly at its core. A story of two lost souls bereft of purpose, briefly finding a connection with one another before the world snatches them apart. This achieves what it sets out to do, which is to make an old classic that is now unbearable to watch for its target audience new again accentuating the emotional side to levels of power and beauty never even approached by the first two versions. That the initial critical acclaim has been forgotten and that the world at large seems to despise this film is a great shame and a loss for humanity. As we dug, the most deeply troubling of all readings of King Kong was a story of slavery. The first two films, 33 and 76, are white America playing with an allegory they don't have to think about too much. But it's clear they are threatened by Kong, especially his interest in their pure white women. And that fear leads them to hunt him, steal him from his land, ship him over the sea, chain him up and make him work for profit panic as he claims his freedom, hunt him down again, and murder him atop the building that symbolizes American power. It's not the least bit subtle, and the ape metaphor is obviously mortifyingly insulting and dehumanizing, and always was. I only mention this reading now because we can't really talk about this film on this show without acknowledging the deeply rooted cultural guilt baked into this tale. Peter Jackson's version is, as I say, far more sympathetic, but still makes clumsy sweeping gestures here and there, especially as handling of the Skull Island natives. To that end, I don't think there's really any call to exactly remake King Kong again in the 20th century, without seriously diverging and elaborating on the events, and most of all, respecting Kong as his own being with a power unto himself. It's not about his threat to us on a personal level anymore. It's about his presence in the world. Kong, Skull Island. These are photos 
of an island in the South Pacific. The place where myth and science meet. We use explosives to shake the earth, helping us to map the surface of the island. You're dropping bombs. Mm, scientific instruments. Is that a monkey? You knew that thing was out here? I'm sorry for your men, Colonel. But if you want to make their sacrifice worthwhile, hit us home with proof. Monsters exist. Whoa, 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 whoa. Your friend there can put that down. What the hell is this place? That's calm. He's king around here. Kong's a pretty good king. Keeps to himself mostly. Well, you don't go into someone's house and start dropping bombs unless you're picking a fight. Kong's god on the island, but the devils live below us. And what are they called? I call them skull crawlers. Why? I never said that name out loud before. It sounds stupid now that I say. Just you call them whatever you want. Okay, Skull Island uh, from 2017. Now, there are five story beats to the original three versions of King Kong. There were a whole bunch, like, there's a whole bunch of other King Kong films, technically, including Son of Kong and uh, Kong Lives. There was a sequel to the one with Jeff Bridges, where apparently Kong lived. Okay. I don't know, he seemed pretty dead when the uh, helicopter shot him, but, uh, okay. But the five story beats are, in all three films, 33, 76, 05. One, an excuse to go to Skull Island, just because it's there in the first one. Uh, because there's oil there in the second one and because we're trying to make a movie mm. in the third in one. The third one. Step two is exploration. Oh, shit, natives! And they meet the natives. Mm-hmm. Uh, then step three is, oh, shit, we're being killed by huge creatures. Then step four is, oh, shit, King Kong! And he's a threat and he's also potential protection for some or none of them. Mm. There's a bit of a seesaw going on there. He will invariably fight something big. And then step five is take Kong back to America and kill him. So Skull Island is steps one, two, three, and four. Yes. Because if you have step five, you can't have him fight Godzilla. No. That's basically what this film is. Well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Big Boy. What this book presupposes is, maybe he didn't. So the general tone of this is not stupid, like Godzilla 98 or Geostorm, uh, but it also shies away from getting personal, which is to its detriment if you're trying to make a film that I personally will like. Especially considering the cast they had. Especially considering the cast. This is one of those rare films where the cast is too good. Hmm. It's a cast that you expect stuff from that then doesn't come. Mm. And in fact, there are times when I was like, why did they cast that person as this character? They're actually working against their usual qualities Mm. and not in a challenging way necessarily. Mm. So if you look at this more as a oververse of the kaiju world, the 
stories and journeys have to be the ones that the humans go through because the giant gorilla can't talk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kong is way depersonalized in this. Mm-hmm. Especially considering if you compare it to the 05 version where yeah. Kong goes on a real journey. Mm. But honestly, I think in part that's to do with his size. This was something that I noticed when, I can't remember the exact point in the film, but it's around the time when he's pulled Brie Larson out of the river. At the end. Yeah. And then I noticed the same thing earlier when uh, Toby Kebbles sat watching him eat the squid. Mm-hmm. You don't really get the God's eye view of Kong. And that makes it harder to see him as a, a living creature with thoughts and feelings. Most of the shots that you get of him, in order to make him look more dramatic and impressive, are done from the perspective of the humans on the ground. And that means that you literally can't see his facial expression and how he might be reacting to something that's going on. Mm. So the human's eye view uh, on uh, the action that takes place is very much like Michael Bay's Transformers, where they're running around going, Oh my God! Yeah. Whereas the kind of Kong I would love is like Bumblebee, where it's one person with Kong connecting. Exactly. Uh, the director, Jordan Vocht-Roberts, uh, has got real flair uh, in terms of framing a picture. The movie looks amazing. It's more evocative of the 70s than the one filmed in the 70s. Yes. One of the notes that I made about it was that it was doing the Vietnam soundtrack thing. Mm-hmm. And it actually did it really well for a film that is not set in Vietnam, although obviously it has the links. Yeah. And it didn't go for the obvious songs. I didn't hear Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, no, I did, actually. <laughs> Better run through the jungle. But usually they play Fortunate Son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, the, the soundtrack is actually one of the standout features of the film, something to draw you in and really give you a sense of place. And it's also it, it's characteristically hot. I never got how hot it was in those earlier Kong films. But this, everyone's got beaded sweat and, and, and they're kind of grimy. And also everyone moves as though they're in a very hot climate, like mm. 
not charging around quite so much because you'll drop dead of, of dehydration. Well, honestly, now you have Florida as an immediate reference point. Uh-huh. But everything in the film seems to be painted in vivid yellows, oranges and greens. Sometimes it feels like a street celebration in India. So yeah, as we mentioned earlier, it sucks that so few of this cast will be returning because it's a period piece and and, and gated off from the 2021 setting of Godzilla vs. King Kong, which is the sequel to Godzilla King of the Monsters, and not to be confused with King Kong vs. Godzilla, the Toho film. That's the one where Kong came in on some balloons. And it's being directed by Adam Wingard, who directed The Guest, which we really didn't like, and Your Next, which we really did like. So it's kind of a toss-up on this one. Hmm. It's important to note, by the way, that the Monsterverse has had four directors so far. Gareth Edwards, Jordan Vogt-Roberts, Michael Doherty for King of the Monsters, and Adam Wingard for Godzilla vs. Kong. But they've also got different story writers, different screenplay writers, and different groups of producers. There's no one person who seems to be present for all four of these movies. Now, that could mean everything, it could mean nothing. It could mean that the series is relatively hit and miss over time. But since Godzilla vs. Kong is set 50 years after this film, that means that none of these guys are coming back. So it's almost immaterial who lives and who dies, if you're looking at this in a a universe overview. Mm. Which may also be why they didn't bend over backwards to get you to emotionally connect with any of the characters. Ultimately, long-term, they're irrelevant. Imagine if Captain Marvel was set in 1995 with a bunch of characters none of whom were ever going to turn up in any uh, uh, Avengers film. And unlike Captain Marvel, zero characterization, really. Like, zero capitalization on the characterization. Mm. These, these characters are defined, and then they go nowhere. So you've got Tom Hiddleston, woefully miscast as a grim, tough guy. Tom Hiddleston is skinny and a little bit effeminate and sexy as fuck. And he looks reflective and a little bit sad, but he has a devilish sense of humor. He's really good with wordplay. He's very smooth and charming, but he's a little bit weaselly. And in this film, he plays a grim, flinty-eyed, mostly silent, chisel-jawed, tough-as-nails survival expert. Mm. Do you know what it kind of felt like to me? That they said to him, right, see Adrian Brody. Yeah. We want you to do him, and then he watched Predators by mistake. <laughs> and went, do I have to do that ridiculously gravelly voice? And I went, no, 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 just, just, just speak in a very stern version of your own voice. And he did, and he does. And there's this one bit where uh, a bunch of pterodactyls are attacking them, and he goes, throw me the Japanese sword. And they do, and then he's like, right, and then he like slices apart a bunch of pterodactyls while there's green smoke flying around him and they're like well you you killed about four pterodactyls out of 40 yeah but it looked really cool when I did so he's like Lego Batman but it's not funny it's it's one of these meaningless super stylish sequences Mm. little segment of power fantasy which doesn't really fit with the theming of the rest of the film Brie Larson isn't so much miscast in her role as a reporter as underused. Mm. She's not given anything to deal with. There's no real conflict for her character. Her character is only required to turn up and either look and seem mildly incredulous, dispassionate, 
Occasionally amazed, but speechless with it. Annoyed at times. Inclining towards wanting to get off the island, but again, she doesn't get to voice it. You know, she's a war reporter, so she's been in the shit. So she can cope with all this stress. But as a result, she's not really on a journey. Yeah, I um, there were quite a few nice little touches I noticed this time round. Um, things like the way she she always has her camera on her, mm-hmm. but she holds it in such a way that it's first off she uses it as a shield to keep people at a distance, and most of the things that she looks at until she actually engages with Kong towards the end, she looks at everything through the camera. So there's always this kind of divide between mm. her and what's going on. Um, but also she uses it as a way of showing everybody that she is always on duty, that she's like, there is no off the record with this woman. She will be taking pictures of absolutely everything. So be careful what you do. Yeah. And there's a, a, a character beat at the end where she and Hiddleston, both of whom survived, decide to keep the secrets of Skull Island. And she says, they're not going to be hearing about it from us. And then she takes a picture of John C. Riley, and I thought, oh, she's going to throw the camera overboard. Like, this whole thing that's defined her, the whole film. You know, I will take this last picture to make this trip, just to cap it off, and then goodbye camera, because I don't want to accidentally revealed the existence of Kong. I I actually want to protect this guy the way he protected me. And instead she goes, click, Mm, that was a nice trip. And then just resets the camera around her neck, looking forward to going home and developing these photos and making sure no one sees them. And she didn't have to destroy the camera. She could just have taken the picture and then flipped the camera open, taken the film out and tossed that overboard. Because the cameras are quite expensive and it's her favourite one, clearly. That's true. And also, Mr Trick, because this is the only time in this series you're going to be able to do that. Yeah. It's digital from it's now on. It's all digital from now on. It's really boring watching somebody just delete a lot of files. One by one. <laughs> the whole last hour of the movie. Yes. John Goodman. Wasted. Wasted in this movie. He's the guy who gets them to the island and says, I, I really got to go and see what's on this island. And he's keeping secrets about this thing that's there. Here's the problem. Samuel L. Jackson's actually well used in this film as an arbiter of vengeance. He's just got out of Vietnam. He feels a real sense of we didn't really win that one. The direct quote is we didn't lose that war. We abandoned it. And a certain level of uh, being rendered useless as a warrior. So when his men are killed by Kong, he decides, I'm going to kill this thing. Which would make an excellent opposition for John Goodman, who isn't there to kill Kong, but to study him so that they could maybe recruit him later. That's the whole point of Monarch in this universe. Mm. They're the ones who are looking at the kaiju and trying to work out what the hell's to be done about them, if not just elimination. So if you've got these... Like, these are two men with incredible gravitas and venerated experience in Hollywood. Those are the two that you oppose. But they both technically want to kill Kong. So John Goodman's character, who just dragged their asses there, kind of comes to nothing and gets eaten by a pterodactyl. It's totally pointless. This is Conflict 101. Two charismatic figures who want opposing things. Clashing. That's drama, folks. 
Instead, the drama is Samuel L. Jackson wants to kill Kong. Kong's not too happy about that. <laughs> but Kong doesn't speak! Well, if you look at that, it bleeds. We did that. We hook up with Chapman. There's enough munitions on that down sea stallion to finish the job. Magnificent. You know why I carry this instead of an M16? Took it off a farmer fighting for the NVA. He surrendered right after we leveled his village. He was 50 years old, said he'd never even seen a gun until we showed up. Sometimes an enemy doesn't exist until you go looking for one. What happens when they show up on your doorstep? I'll still have his gun. Best of luck with that, soldier. natives for the first time ever is actually pretty good they're quiet reserved uh they look like airbenders they do they seem wise and a little bit sad they kind of go in the other direction of let's not be too racist by making them as noble as possible and thus not really all that human. There's one little bit where Brie Larson takes photos of them and they're like, hey, and they, they kind of acting up for the camera. But most of the time they don't really come off like people. Um, I think the way they came across to me, and this kind of supported the, the airbender thing, is that unlike that sort of uh, noble warrior savage stereotype they were portrayed as very small group of people who have to survive on an island full of fucking huge things that are designed to kill them swimming knives and <laughs> do you want to get skull crawlers because that's, that's how you, you get, get skull crawlers it kind of seemed like the only way they've lived if you remove the the benefit that they've had of Kong's protection. The only way they've survived is by being as small and unnoticeable as possible. Mm. And that actually seemed really genuine. It fit with the environment that they were in. And I loved the fact that they had, like, to compare them to the natives in the Jackson version, yeah. for example. That's, obviously, that's the worst handling because it's the most because contemporary. It's 2005. We get that you're mimicking the old one, but still. Um, How are you somehow more racist than yeah, the old one? Exactly. Because you ought to know better, really. Um, but they were like they were really aggressive and um, insane. They yeah, there was no real. See, they didn't seem like people to me. Whereas these guys were unassuming, but they also had all this rich myth going on. They had a temple that they'd they had all these paintings on rocks that if you moved a certain way and looked at it a certain way it would tell you a pictorial story which I thought was really nicely done everything was very simple but very real let me revise that they did seem 
real, but in a collective sense. Yes. There was no individuality, no individuality there. Yes, absolutely. There wasn't yeah. one who was a little bit of a dosser. Yeah. There was, that effectively was what you had John C. Riley there for. He yeah. was there to speak for them because it's easier than trying to add extra time for translation. I don't know. I mean, even he said he didn't really understand their words. They just sort of, they communicated things by gesture for the most part. John C. Riley's Hank Marlowe was a World War II fighter pilot who ended up crashing on the island at the same time as a Japanese fighter pilot called Gunpei. And we'll come back to that at the end because that's one of the main themes. But John C. Riley's character is the only one who has a major arc in this really, in terms of he starts out at the beginning as this young idiot just thoroughly involved in the conflict, and at the end, he's older, he's wiser, and technically kind of gets the Steve Rogers ending. And there's very much an emotional core there of a man out of time who has made peace with his life, but dreams of being home again. Once again, a character who just wants what we take for granted. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you always do. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. But also it's John C. Riley, so we're allowed a little bit of slightly goofy, still kind of dry comedic delivery. He's mm. excellent at that. Yeah. Keep your eyes open. Up in the trees, too. Why? Ants. Big ones. There's one. Sounds like a bird, but it's a fucking ant. They swapped dinosaurs for skull crawlers. There's even a bit when they're standing on top of a a triceratops skull. And I was like, do you have any triceratopses? Because I would like that. I would like that. Hmm. So that there's another film series that has dinosaurs in it than just Jurassic Park. Yes, indeed. Well, technically, I I suppose that's what kaiju are. Yeah, but these skull crawlers are boring monsters. Are they the spider beasties? The big things with tails and two legs and heads. Oh, they're, them. They're kind of like yeah. crap T-Rexes. Yeah. They don't look exciting and they don't think... There's, there's a little bit of cunning to them. That, that one point where the guy who reminded me a lot of Hawkeye mm. decides to do the noble thing of unpinning a bunch of grenades and running straight into the mouth of one of them to save his friends and it just whacks him into a mountain with its tail smelling a rat Mm. so there is some cunning to it but in practicality it behaves exactly the same as the v-rexes in the 2005 king kong only it just doesn't look like something that could be alive yeah well they they reminded me specifically of one of the kaiju designs in pacific rim except a simplified version of it not blue fluorescent glow in the dark and therefore slightly more boring They look like mid-level bosses in the first Devil May Cry. Okay. You know, ones that you fight one of early in the game, and then you end up getting to fight three of them in a row, and they actually get kind of boring. Mm. 
The level of creature design that Weta Workshop went through for the 05 Kong meant that they were really thinking about the animals themselves and asking how could they live, same as they applied that to Lord of the Rings. And I'd like to think that this production team did the same, but manifested with the skull crawlers, we never saw them really in repose. We never saw them doing anything other than attack. By contrast, Kong striding around the island really does seem like a god of nature, especially when he helps that giant water buffalo Pokemon thing. He seems like a guardian you don't want to get on the wrong side of. Circus versus Kebble and Notary. Toby Kebble also notably playing Jack Chapman, the soldier. He's in a third party all of his own, and it comes to nothing. He just gets killed by a skull crawler. It's kind of a, what was all that about moment. Kind of like how Andy Serkis gets killed for no good reason by a disgusting dick creature in Kong 05. And Toby Kebble provided facial references for Kong. But Terry Notary, who played Rocket in the Planet of the Apes films, as well as the mocap performer for both Hulk and Abomination in The Incredible Hulk 2008, was the main mocap performer of the body of Kong in Skull Island. Obviously, Circus has a lot of acting to do because his Kong goes through a whole arc, and Kebble's version of Kong, uh, Toby Kebble was, of course, uh, Koba to Circus's Caesar in the Apes films, so he's kind of passed on the, the Kong stick, if you will. Mm. It's difficult to compare them because the emphasis is on different qualities for both. Mm -hmm. I honestly really, really liked Kebble's version. And Notary's. And I liked the fact that they had made Kong this Lovecraftian god. So huge that we couldn't really comprehend what thoughts went through his monkey mind. And that's very, very different from the very human personification that Andy Serkis does. Mm. Which, interestingly enough, I find less impressive having seen him do Caesar. Oh, yeah. He became more complex. Well, plus you got three films worth of very complex conflict going back and forth with multiple characters. Yeah. And many different responsibilities Caesar had to face. Mm. But still, his Kong remains my favourite. I, I, I like Kebble's Kong. I'm interested to see what they do with him later. Apparently he'll be a more rugged Kong. I'm not even sure what that would look like. He's pretty damn rugged as it is. He has punky scars mm. where he got chest scratched and shoulder yeah. bitten. But thinking about the, uh, the 05 Kong, it's something I said about the Meg. They took a silverback gorilla, grabbed the corner slider, and just pulled outwards until mm. it was way bigger Maybe than a really gorilla big. should be. Absolutely. Whereas this it behaves like something so big and slow to sell the scale on it mm. that it is a titan, a word that they repeatedly use in the kaiju verse. That it positions them as gods on earth. Mm. Well, the, the Titans, if you think about it, are kind of they're the precursors to the gods. The, yeah. the Greek gods, if you look at the Pantheon, were all very humanised and they were all representative of things that humans could relate to. The Titans were meant to be big, stony clay beasts that could destroy it all and, and we couldn't really comprehend. Very elemental. Yeah. Yeah. Can't be reasoned with. Absolutely. 
And going back to Gunpei, the uh, Japanese fighter pilot, he dies in the interim between his uh, brief bloody fight with John C. Riley at the beginning, which both of them survive, with the fight being stopped by Kong, it would appear. Mm. Marlowe is sad, uh, melancholy, bittersweet over his uh, uh, former enemy, sometime companion. And the thesis of the film, such as it is, and this comes down to uh, Samuel L. Jackson's Captain Ahab-level obsession with Kong that takes him all the way up to an explosive death. The film extols the virtues of working together without anger. Often there isn't a fight until you go looking for one. Mm. parallels Vietnam in terms of America stepped in to deal with an international crisis and got in way over their head and due to pride would not pull out. Which is also reflected in the fact that they give you that snippet of the the dogfight and the planes crashing from 1944 Mm. because that is more or less what the Japanese were doing at the time. Their pride would not let them back down and they ended up with more of a fight than they had intended and that having that introduction there really gives it this feeling of you know these conflicts which to you seem so important and so crucial i mean the, when they find marlow he says something like is the war over and the response is which one mm. and he, he says, says that, that figures, figures yeah. yeah but the the whole thing about these creatures is they don't give a shit your your petty conflicts are utterly meaningless to them um, and we presumably will see how the atomic bomb is connected with Godzilla and moving forward because it's such an inherent part of his mythology. But um, yeah, that, that whole having these great giant colossi that oversee and ignore so much of the human story that's going on around their feet. Yeah. So in the words of the immortal Will Smith, and a film we'll be covering next week or a couple of weeks from now, don't start nothing, won't be nothing.
Remember that eight-minute chat about Peter Jackson's King Kong sandwiched between the essays on the second and third films? Well, that was part of an 80-minute recording we made late one evening back in 2017 after I'd seen Skull Island at the cinema. We unwisely marathoned through the other three King Kong movies that day and then tried to record a show on the series. The best of it went into the written movie-a-day pieces, but that fragment was the best of what was left when I trimmed away the nonsense. Aside from this final bit here, which is nonsense, but we were so tired we'd become delirious, and our estimations for Warner Brothers Monsterverse went in some strange directions. Before that, just time to say a big thank you to our top-tier patrons, Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gesiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. Next week we will be covering the first three Men in Black movies. Only this time we won't watch them all at once and then try to podcast on them. That is how you get gibberish like this. I don't know how these movies can work. What are they going to do? What's the plot of Godzilla vs. King Kong? Because we already know that Godzilla is somewhat benevolent in that he ended up actually saving the day in the original Godzilla movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Godzilla's like, you're welcome, and then just belly flops back into the sea to swim away. And then everyone cheering him is like, well done, Godzilla. And then they turn around and look at the devastation of their city. Indeed. Multiple but cities. As humans, we are naturally inclined to be more empathetic with Kong because mammal. Yeah. Mammal versus lizard, it shouldn't be difficult to pick a side on that one. Well, it, it feels like the only real narrative way forwards is that they they recruit, i.e. trap, King Kong and Godzilla, put bombs in their necks, and Amanda Waller comes out and goes, right, now I've got this iPhone app, right? And then Kong goes, on. <laughs> Not anymore, you don't. <laughs> King Ghidorah, who is, like, introduced with a wave of the hand. Is he a hydra? He's got three heads. He's a three-headed dragon. Okay. Which is three times better than Godzilla, who is basically a dragon. Mm. Monster dinosaur thing. Does he breathe fire? Yep. Yeah. You know Godzilla. King Ghidorah. I might be thinking of Godzuki. (laughs) So might I. So that's just it, Godzilla. They've got your family. (laughs) But I'm not. You are now to America. That's the plot of Godzilla. <laughs> It'll be Godzilla v King Kong Dawn of Justice. They've got Godzuki in a box. They're poking him with sticks. You have to take on King Kong at the Royal Rumble. Otherwise, they'll never let him out. Because they're both goodies, technically. How is Lex going to get them to fight? Oh, my God. Do they both have mothers called Martha? Because then, that's the only possible conclusion to this. And then fake Rachel Ghoul turns up and goes, Let them fight. So the end is actually not that one of them wins. It's that they mutually agree to stop fighting yeah. and go and bite the heads off whoever told them to fight in the first place. Because then they bring out a cave troll at the last minute. Like Maybe they bring in one of them and then that one goes on the rampage. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Good um, game. Good film. They bring the other one. And then they bring the other one to, to take down them. that first one. Kind of like Suicide Squad. <laughs> Again! Because each one is their own enchantress. The final act can only be that they basically bring in Mothra. Mothra! Who, who drops sleepy dust over everybody. Yes. And then they all go home for tea. Yes, I like this idea. <laughs> do it, but for the love of God, just do it with the next one. You don't need to do the build-up by having a Mothra-only movie. <laughs> You don't need to introduce the world to Mothra again. No, 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 I have it. This is the Mothra movie. Or at all. This is the Mothra movie, right? Yeah, yeah. She's sat at home. There's a giant coat. It's got holes in it. It can only be Mothra. (laughs) No, no, no. She's sat at home. She's sitting in in an armchair reading a newspaper. Mm -hmm. There's a telephone in the corner. Mm -hmm. It's just an hour and a half of her... Mothra's reading a giant paper newspaper. Reading the newspaper, yeah. How was this thing put together? I don't know. And looking at the phone pointedly, it does not ring. Oh. And then the final shot is she sighs, she folds up the paper, she turns off the lamp, she goes to walk out of the room, and the phone rings. Dun, dun, dun! Hang on a second. She turns off the lamp. It, it, it seems like she'd spend the whole time bumping her face against the lamp. Wouldn't she? And then eventually the lamp light bulb goes out. And then she has to work out what to do. Maybe that's the beginning of the movie. And they're like, without a lamp, she goes to bump her head against the sun. And if that happens, nuclear meltdown. So they've got to get Godzilla into space. I can't, I can't, I can't even. I'm an imaginative guy. I cannot come up with a plot flimsy enough to enable this to happen. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait. Go for it. Mothra's flying towards the sun. Yep. Mm. Okay. They send Godzilla up in a spacesuit. Okay, I like it. To take her down. But they have to do it at night. (laughs) (laughs) So he's going in the wrong direction? Yes. Why? I don't know. Okay, this is stupid. I'm tired. Can you tell? Yep. So, okay. Let's say that a bunch of mutos and skull crawlers are invading Pittsburgh and they have to fly to Skull Island to pick up Kong to drop him into Pittsburgh to take out the mutos and the skull crawlers who have come up through rifts, shall we say. And then King Kong goes mental. He's just tearing the place up. And the people of Pittsburgh bring him all these bananas. This sounds like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. No, his is um, Philadelphia. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. And they bring him all these bananas. And then he he gets tired and has a little sleepy. And in the (laughs) middle... No, the bananas would calm him. Right, okay, he's, he's been going no, on a rampage no, 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 because no, his no. potassium was too low. Yeah. Once he's eaten all the bananas, this he is something that I learned right from the, the hell down. This is something I learned from the Gymquisition. Peter Andre once ate a whole bunch of bananas and then passed out before a gig. <laughs> he was supposed to go out and sing Mysterious Girl, but he got a potassium overload and just had a little sleepy. That will be King Kong. Maybe they've got to get Godzilla in to just go... And wake, wake him, him up. up. <laughs> so yeah, that that's gonna be the that's gonna be the day saved. And then oh yeah, that's it. 
because there's no siren loud enough to wake him up, they have to bring in Godzilla to wake him up, but they piss him off so much when they wake him up that they have a fight. Or, or Godzilla no, no, burns wait, all his bananas, it. he burns them all, and then Kong is so pissed off. You know, he, he'll give that, now I'm pissed off, look, that Kong does. Kong has yeah. um, uh, a little, little helmet bubble strapped to his head mm-hmm. with a person in it. No. Holding strings. What? Primitive Jaeger. Jaeger? Jaeger. See, Jager. I told you I'm tired. You mean like a ratatouille Jaeger? Yes. Pulling on Kong's hair? Yes. Rather you than me. <laughs> I'd like to see that flippin' omelette. So then Mothra gets brought in with the sleepy dust to send everyone to sleep. Hmm. That's the only way that can... Okay, balls in your court, Warner Brothers. Come up with a better better idea than that. I, I, you know what? Honestly, if in 2021 you throw that stuff together and you call it Death to All Monsters or something, I mean, it's a franchise that will just keep giving and giving, isn't it? <sighs> Except it won't, because these things are powered by characters. And the kaiju are not really characters. No, it turns out... I mean, they are, but they're, they're, their needs are so simple. Lego movie style, mm-hmm. it pulls back to reveal that this whole fucking franchise mess has been a kid playing with Monster in My Pockets. I mean, yeah, okay, that, that is quite a good end to the movie, that they admit the daftness and the, the, the cheapness of their whole premise is just a child playing with toys, but there are... Mm. It's more like a parent puppeteering the toys for the amusement of the child, and the amusement of the child generates cash. That's that's what that is. Meanwhile, the child's gone outside to play cup and ball. In terms of starting out a series, I prefer Gareth Edwards' Godzilla and this version of Skull Island to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. So whatever stupid Suicide Squad they come up with next is probably going to be better than Suicide Squad. Just as long as he doesn't have Jared Leto in it. I was just about to say that precise thing. If <laughs> He's Jared too much of a monster. It, it will automatically be an improvement. So I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out. Thank you.